Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and today I show you I can take the heat in the kitchen by deconstructing Celebrity Chef, a guy who actually hates being called a Celebrity Chef, Luke Mangum. In fact, he's a celebrity entrepreneur, as you will soon find out. Then we catch up with an entrepreneur, Mark McCrindle, who actually created a great business working out why we do the stuff we do. His latest book is called Work Wellbeing, Lending, sorry, Leading Thriving Teams in Rapidly Changing Times. Mark's a really smart guy and has and I say, he's worked out why we do stuff. And to create a business around that was really clever stuff. And then Maureen Jordan tells us about a new website to help women become fabulously rich and smart with money. The website is called tillymoney.com.au. And Maureen Jordan also doubles as my wife. This is not an easy person to interview, let me tell you. All that coming up. Hope you stick with us. I'm joined by one of the country's most well-known chefs, Luke Mangan. And I'm particularly interested to see how he's navigated through these troubled times. Luke, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. Well, Luke, you you and I have been in business for a long time. I know not in any of my business plans did I ever plan to cope with a pandemic. (laughs) Were you preparing for a pandemic? Well, mate, if you you'd ever if you told me in February that uh, uh, cruise ships were going to stop sailing, planes were going to stop flying, hotels were closing down, and restaurants would stop, I'd say you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my business I'm in. All that. Um, so look, we we were affected like everyone. Um, a good ninety five percent of our business stopped, um, which, which was troubling, obviously, and, and you know for everyone gone through it, been through it, stood staff down and things like that. But, you know, in that period, I, I, I all of a sudden got busy through, uh, uh, we read, did some, got asked to do some commercials, TV commercials for Coles, um, the supermarket chain, Cooking at Home. And I ended up filming about 15 or so of them at home on, on the iPhone and things like that. So yeah. I actually kept quite busy and then also doing that and keeping in touch with, with staff, with, with down and, 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 but I was always think, thinking what it's going to look like on the, on the way out of this. And, and, um, it was funny. I, I formed a group of some business minds, uh, during, during it in, in, uh, March and April, uh, people like John O'Sullivan, ex tourism Australia, John Borghetti, uh, Damien Eels and, uh, uh, Steve and Chobo were, were part of that group. And, and we, we, we had a few chats about my main concern was how the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry was going to um, pick itself up after this. And we were looking at forming different things. And, and, and you know, a lot of people started doing takeaway food, uh, which I didn't start until, um, you know, until JobKeeper came in, to be honest. I brought mm. some staff back and we started that. And, and yes, Walter was viable. I don't see it as a longer term part of the business model now, uh, now that we've reopened and, and, and things have 
sort of picked up again, as it were. We, we, we're doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights at Luke's Kitchen. Uh, we're doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights and Friday lunch at Glass at the Hilton. Um, and things are, are going okay. We've been open a few weeks and um, we've brought a lot of our staff back on JobKeeper. And I, I must admit, if we didn't have JobKeeper, uh, it might be a different story mm. uh, on where our industry and where restaurants would be at. What, what percentage? You said you were down 95% at the beginning. What are you, would you be down now? Oh, we're still down about 70%. Mm. Uh, you know, if you look at it with the cruise ships and the, and the airline. Uh, and our product business, which supplied cruise ships and airlines and restaurants and hotels, um, you know, when you've got, example, the Hilton Hotel, you know, weekends are actually picking up a bit, but, you know, occupancies of 10, 11%. It just, uh, no one's coming through the doors, obviously. Mm, mm. So, so, Luke, as a consequence of this forced period where you had to rethink your business model, how will it be different when we allegedly get back to normal? What will, what have you learned out of this that you'll take to the, the next business model, the post-pandemic business model? Well, I think we're doing it already at both restaurants. We've changed a lot where um, – let, let's put it this way. When we did uh, airline food and, and, and big catering foods, we always worked with big, big companies that would – be the labour cost to us because our biggest problem in restaurants and hotels is labour and rent, as you know. Yeah. Now, if you can't control them, you've got issues. And I think, you know, again, once JobKeeper finishes here for our industry, there you may see more restaurants potentially close. Um, so we've been working for, for years with people who produce our food on a, on a big scale. Um, well, that means for us, we're going to possibly be looking at using less labour in our kitchen and, and um, producing smaller menus, and that means less wastage, less labour. And uh, I think that's going to be a model of many restaurants to come. Mm. So th- does that mean, Luke, and let me use the, the analogy of what I'm seeing in the fashion area, that, that a lot of young people might buy a couple of items to wear from H&M and dress it up mm. with something from Louis Vuitton and Chanel <laughs> or something like that. So it's where once upon a time it was either all H&M or all Louis Vuitton. They're, they're kind of mixing and matching. Do you see that there'll be aspects of your restaurant that you, you, you won't have to do as labour-intensively and in the kitchen and still be able to produce something that people would say, I would never have been able to do that at home. 100%. Mm. 100%. We're doing it now. We are doing it now. We, uh, um, we've shortened up. You know, for example, the cocktail list. You know, so, but pre, pre all this, we'd have three or four barmen at glass. Mm. We'd have two barmen at Luke's Kitchen. Now, we've shortened the cocktail list. We've simplified it. One barman, two barmen, if that makes sense. So, mm. it, it's because... It, you know, the amount of wastage we would have in restaurants, and I'm not just talking outfit in general, you know, because we wanted big menus, we wanted big cocktail lists, we wanted 20 wines by the glass. Well, I think these days are gone mm. um, because the restaurant business, the restaurant model, as you would know, and you've spoken to many people and you know many people in the industry, it, it's very hard to make a buck out of it. Mm. I've been lucky that I got income streams from cruise ships and aeroplanes and, and books and products and things like that, although it stopped, 
Um, hmm. But but you know, I've been lucky that we were in a good position before all this happened. Luke, uh, when you reflect upon your whole business experience, and, and I know you and I have talked about you know, how you, you got into the restaurant game. And I think for the sake of my uh, listeners who, who don't know, mm. uh, I, I'd love you just to, to explain how you ended up, A, being a chef, and B, how you ended up becoming a celebrity chef. Because I think it's all about uh, doing stuff you love. But secondly, yeah. you've built a brand and everybody in business who, who owns a business who'd like to be successful as you has to understand it's brand building that's critically important. Well, first, one thing I, I hate is the word celebrity chef because you pick up a newspaper now and everyone's a celebrity chef. So <laughs> and, they're all in, term, and they're all in trouble as well at the moment. <laughs> exactly right. That's right. But look, I, I got lucky, Peter, I think. And I think I, I got kicked out of school at 15. I really fell into a cooking apprenticeship in Melbourne with, with the great Herman Schneider at Two Faces Restaurant in South Yarra, which back then in 1985 was one of the best restaurants in the world, or in Australia, I should say. Did my full apprenticeship there, moved to London, uh, worked in a three-star Michelin under a restaurant called uh, The Waterside Inn under Michelle Rue, famous chef, three years there, and came back to Sydney, well, came back to Melbourne. Not many things went right for me at this time. I was about 24 or 25, and um, every restaurant, I was a second chef, sous chef position, uh, and I was quite young for that role, but every restaurant I, I worked in went broke, and they all closed down. So, so three restaurants in a row in Melbourne that I'd worked in all went broke. And I thought, God, I, I've stuffed up. I don't know what I'm going to do. Because I couldn't have done anything at the park from cooking. I didn't really start enjoying cooking until I got to London because an apprenticeship back then was washing pots and pans, peeling potatoes and peeling onions. But w- once I started to enjoy it, I, I got this job offer from, who you would know, or know of, Mr. John, uh, Justin Hem's father. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was a... a his first foray into um, uh, the hotel restaurant business, pubs, and they bought Hotel CBD. He asked me to be the head chef of CBD at 24, and that I did, and, and I just was at the right place at the right time doing the right food, um, and we just became very successful overnight in that whole package of what he did mm. with the pub and the bar downstairs and, 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 and sort of the lounge bar upstairs at CBD. And the rest, I stayed there for four years, and, and working with John was incredible. He was an incredible businessman and very smart. I learned a lot from him mm. um, in, in the restaurant business model sense. I never built worked to build a brand. I think it just came about. I opened a restaurant in uh, 1999 called Salt, just before. The- <laughs> no, we, along with Rockpool Tetsuya's and, and perhaps Otto, we were the hottest restaurants in Sydney, if not Australia. And we got all that trade, you know, the, the, the Americans coming over for the Olympics and all that, and we, we just killed it. And, and, and Salt really hit not just the map on Australia, but really hit an international map. And I became very lucky there again. But then, you know, as, as a young cocky chef I was, I expanded. I opened up Bistro Lulu and a place in North Bondi, and I had about four or five restaurants uh, and things got tight. I, I nearly went broke after five years of that um, and, and got rid of Salt, got rid of Lulu and got rid of Moorish uh, and, and I was just so close from, from being broke but just before all that happened I, I, I got lucky with Hilton mm. uh, and, and they came to me and 15 years ago 
uh, yesterday um, was Lance's 15th birthday. But, but Luke, your luck is interesting because, you know, part of your luck at Salt was that Richard Branson liked what he, he had at your restaurant one night. And That's right. Did that partly explain your link to Virgin? Exactly right. Four guys came in for dinner in, in, in the early 2000s. And uh, we had an open kitchen, and the waiter came up and said, oh, this table wants to speak to you. And I thought, God, this could be a problem. But anyway, I went out and chatted, and, and they asked if I'd join. And I said, no, you'd be great. And we had a glass of wine, and they said, uh, I said, where do, where do you work? And they go, oh, Virgin. And I go, okay. And great. And then they said, their boss was coming out in a month's time. And I go, oh, okay, great, great. And they said, uh, we'd love him to come and join, uh, come, come into the restaurant. And I said, great, great. And who's your boss? And they go, it's not Richard Branson, is it? And I thought, yeah. So, okay. And I thought, I'd never hear back to this. About a month later, I got a phone call uh, on the mobile. Uh, Luke, I go, yes, it's 11 o'clock on a Friday. I'll never forget it. Uh, Luke, I said, yeah, it's uh, uh, Richard Branson here. And I'm thinking, seriously. Like, I'm looking around the room at yeah. my staff and thinking, they're taking the mickey out of me. But it was Richard, and he said, look, he wanted a table for lunch. Uh, and I said, look, Richard, you know, Salt, we're, we're, we're jam-packed, but I do have a restaurant in Bondi called Moorish. Why don't you head down there, and, and uh, I'll set you up on the balcony, blah, blah, blah. Did that, and then just before he hung up, he said, um, oh, will you be there? And I said, I'll come for a quick drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, it was, you know, 11 o'clock, so 12 o'clock, I got Salt, the full restaurant, I got Moorish, the full, so I ran down and met him, had a drink, blah, blah, blah. Great time, and left, left him and the family, there a table at 10. I went back to Salt. Now, Friday night, 7.30 at Salt, obviously, was full. Chocolate box. My mobile rings again. Luke, it's Richard. I thought, bloody hell, he's got food poisoning or something happened. <laughs> I thought the word. And he goes, um, we had a great lunch. I really want to bring Joan, my wife, to Salt for dinner. I said, great. When do you want to come? And he goes, look, we're only in the holiday, holiday in around the corner. In about 10, 15 minutes, is that all right? And I said, oh, God, <laughs> we had about We had no time. I said, okay, great. We'll see you soon. Hung up. Obviously, you find tables, you make tables available, and that particular night we did. And Richard and Joan came in, and the whole restaurant stopped, and uh, he just asked me to cook for him, and that was great, and asked me for a drink afterwards. Went out. He said, look, we're flying Virgin is landing out here uh, in about six to 12 months. I want you to come to my island in the Caribbean to discuss a few things. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, here I am, mate, at 31, I'm thinking, this billionaire guy's asking me to his island. <laughs> and I thought nothing would happen. But about a few weeks later, he's second in charge rang me. Uh, he flew me and four of my chefs first, first class to Necker Island in the Caribbean. He wanted me to, uh, there was a note on the bed when I arrived at midnight and said, you know, let's have breakfast in the morning. So I'm having breakfast with Richard. And he said to me, you know what, I wanted you to cook a few meals for me and a few friends, but I just want you to enjoy the island. Mm. We cooked one meal for him. That was it. And the rest, we played tennis, uh, water skied. I learned how to uh, kite ski and everything like that. It was quite incredible. And that's how the relationship started. It was funny how we did did business, I guess. So, Luke, a lot of people would be wondering, how does a a chef who was lucky to to train under the right people eventually – picks up the business skills and you, know, you, you, you did expand rapidly. You, you worked out it was you know, not going to head in the right direction. I, I'd love you to tell me why it wasn't working. But secondly, how did you eventually pick up the business um, savvy, savviness to do what you did before the, the pandemic, have the cruise lines, have the, yeah. the, the, the big uh, classy restaurants? And you have also opened up restaurants overseas as well, haven't you, in, in your time? Yeah, yeah well – 
Look, to answer your question, I think by nearly going broke when I had Salt Pistro, Little Little Moorish, made me realise this business is tough. Mm. And even to have one restaurant was hard enough to make a quid. So I thought, I've got to get out there. I've got to, so I started doing cookbooks. So I started doing Today Show on Channel 9 um, and doing more TV, getting the brand out there. Mm. Um, and you know me, I'm a, I'm pretty sort of relaxed sort of guy. Uh, how the cruise ships happened, we, we ran a, a program called Appetite for Excellence, which is a sh- uh, to encourage young people in our industry. And a gentleman came up to me on one awards night and said to me, what a great night, blah, blah, blah. And I'd had a few drinks. And, and I said, oh, great. You know, thanks for coming. I go, by the way, what do you do and why are you here? And he goes, oh, one of the sponsors in there. I said, oh, great. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I, I'm the vice president of, of P&O Cruise Ships. And I stupidly, well, after a few drinks, I said, well, we should have a restaurant on one of your ships one day. And uh, he looked at me and... Uh, about two weeks later, I got a call from this guy, Sturm on Mermil. He calls me. So, you know, I met you at the awards and we had a chat and, and I could barely remember the conversation we'd had. And he said, you know, can we have lunch? I'd like to talk about having restaurants on the cruise ship. And at that time, <laughs> I, I seriously didn't think much about it. But we had lunch. And then I thought, do I want to be involved with P&O, that brand? Because yeah. they'd had a lot of problems. Yeah. And, and cruise ship food and things like that. But this Stira gentleman, who's a lovely guy, my partner now for 15 years in these in these restaurants, um, assured me that they wanted change and they were going to change it. And everything I asked for, separate kitchens, separate teams, different produce from the rest of the ships, he gave me, guaranteed to me, and has stuck to his word to this day. And that's what's been so made them restaurants. So mm. It seems to me, Luke, as you reflect upon you know your life story, that the the words "a few drinks" pops up <laughs> on many occasions, <laughs> and it hasn't been to your disadvantage. No, exactly right. I mean, I like a wine. I'm in the business. Um, uh, you know, I think I think doing a, a, a business deal or a, or you know, if I get asked to do something, a TV commercial, whatever. I always like to go out for a lunch or something, to, and this is honest, and, and, and because I want that person to be in a relaxed frame of mind, and I feel that I'm in a relaxed frame of mind, rather than sitting in a bloody boardroom or a meeting room or, or whatever it may be, and and having that discussion uh, over a meal and a glass of wine. And mm. I think I get the best results from it, personally. Luke, one other theme that comes up all the time, that when you encounter one kind of challenge, you then respond and do things differently. You talked about you, you started to write books, you, mm. you, you've got a television show. Do these mm. things just come through the door or do you position yourself to get people? Clearly in the case of P&O, with, via drinking, you come up with a really good yeah. idea. That was your <laughs> initiative. But the other things, do, do you have to say to yourself, okay, this is not working as well as I, I wanted to do. What else can I do? And and I'm kind of thinking out of this pandemic, you may well come up with something new as well because, you know, you're close linked to Verge and, you know, could be affected by the fact that there are now new owners there. What, what are you currently thinking about in terms of a new innov- uh, an innovation that could keep this Mangan brand of yours uh, alive and kicking? Well, look, I think I, I really believe cruise ships will come back mm. and when they come back, they'll be they'll – be, uh, you know, as good as they were. I really believe that. So I, I don't see a problem there. The airline business, who knows what's going to happen there, as you said. Um, for me at the moment, in, in after this sort of two, three months of downtime that we've all had, 
I've done a lot of thinking. And I, as you know, I had 23 restaurants at our peak and thankfully uh, sold my Asian restaurants in June 18 to my business partner. Um, so I was very lucky at that time to get out of that. For me at the moment, less is more, Peter. I really want to focus on our Luke's Kitchen brand and what we're doing there and, and keep focusing on glass. And I don't see myself having five, 10, 15 restaurants anymore, to be honest. Concentrate on the two great things we have and just keep doing them well and keeping the brand out there is, is my goal. Luke, it's been a great pleasure talking to you as I always, you know, always enjoy. Uh, you're great in sharing your, your observations and I know you're very happy to help others coming along who aspire to be as good as it and even, even better than the great Luke uh, Mangan. Thanks for coming on the show. I look forward to having a wine soon, Pete. <laughs> so do I, mate, as soon as possible. Thanks, mate. Well, coming up later in the show is uh, Maureen Jordan. She's going to be talking about a new website for women to help them get really good with money. It's called tillymoney.com.au. So if there's a woman in your life who you care about, let her know about tillymoney.com.au. Well, as I said earlier, my next guest, Mark McCrindle, started a business really telling us about us. You know, uh, he's a social research uh, expert and he's created the social research business called McCrindle. Mark, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Peter. Tell us what McCrindle does. Yeah, we take the pulse of the nation of business, the community and consumers. So as social researchers, we're we're trying to look at those changes in sentiment, in attitudes, in generational change. We, we look at demographics, population shifts, and really helping businesses prepare for what's next. The idea for the business, because when you first started off, it was quite a radical idea. And I do remember you were instantly accepted, uh, well, it seemed to be instantly accepted. <laughs> Maybe you tell us the true story, but the idea of the business, and, and what was it like trying to get accepted as a player in the business community? Yeah, I was. It was uh, you know a great journey, and and for us from the start, we didn't just want to be market researchers. You know, there's enough groups out there that'll look at chip packets or t television commercials and and give feedback on that. You know, we wanted to look at the deeper and broader issues of Australia. And for me, Hugh McKay was a mentor and someone who gave me a lot of direction. And that that sort of commentary that he gave, and along with him, people like Bernard Salt, looking at the demographics. You know. I found great insight in, in the work of people like that, Phil Ruthven, you know, someone else mm. that, that you know on the on the industry side and how industries are shifting. And so I uh, you know, learned from afar from, from these uh, business experts and commentators and, and looked at, again, those broader factors of what's transforming our society, attitude, mind, mood, demographics, and sentiment. And that, uh, it turns out, in the long term, uh, really drives the trends. And I always thought, Mark, that one of your big advantages, which a lot of other businesses can't easily access, is that when you did some work and you came up with a conclusion, which effectively was your product, you could actually inform the media. And because they invariably were very interesting topics, the media would have loved to, to basically give you free publicity apart from giving you know the information that you, you discovered. And so in a sense, the, the name McCrindle was being sold by the media, which really helped the growth of your business. Is that a fair call? That's exactly right. And, you know, that's the great thing with any of us that are passionate about our work and really 
spend time in discovering anything. If it's of interest to us, it's of interest to others. That 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 uh, Carl Rogers quote, you know, whatever is most personal is most universal. Mm. And we found that to be true. I find it fascinating to look at everything from, uh, you know, sentiment amidst COVID and our fears and what's driving panic buying through to baby names and the trends in all of that. And so if it's of interest to us and if it does have broader societal impact, then it'll be interesting to the media. And as you said, that does create a little bit of brand recognition, which is nice. But for us, you know, the deeper driver is that we believe that research and data and the the insights from Australians should be set free, belongs to the people. And so we've always worked really hard to make all of our reports accessible uh, to anyone and communicated broadly. What were the the big challenges for the business in the early days and, and how did you beat them? Well, uh, the research industry, like a lot of industries, uh, is is dominated by multinational players. There was a lot of consolidation as I was coming in and smaller ones were being subsumed into larger ones. And we've remained uh, a fully independent um, um, organization amidst what what really is uh, multinational um, operators. And also the integration of research into the whole communication space. So, so marketing, advertising, insights, advisory, they're all being bundled together. Whereas, you know, we're a great believer in, in, in the purity of research, in the science of it, and in the fact that it ought to stay separate from the marketing side of a business, um, and, and the messaging side. And so we've, we've sort of remained fiercely independent in that. But, you know, obviously, being a micro player in a, in, 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 in a big world um, is a challenge. And so it is about carving out one's own niche. Uh, probably the biggest opportunity we had was when we recognized that, yep, surveys are important and in-depth interviews, focus groups important, but you need to add numbers to that, which is where the demographics and data analytics comes in. And you need to communicate that, which is where the the data visualization comes in. And we work hard on infographics and visual reports because that's what gets read. No one these days is going to read the 20 or 30 or 40 page report. Mm, that's exactly right. Um, the internet also, I've always figured, was a, a great um, a thing to show up to help a business like yours. Am I right in saying that? Exactly right. And it's working out where the internet and social media sits. And we realized early on that, you know, for us, it's not about setting up the paywall. It's not about trying to monetize it in that sense. It's, it's actually utilizing that to get the insights out, get them shared and spread. And that does lead to a bit of brand recognition. It leads to, you know, the phone ringing and then we can be commissioned for more research. So, you know, I think for businesses out there, it's, it's knowing how to, how to, you know, use the media and, and social media, understand that it is a platform, understand that media is as it was called, a hungry beast, is looking for great, new, original, and and important information. And if you can provide that for the media, you know, as long as you've got a, I guess, a way of monetizing something in the business cycle so you can keep going, uh, which we do through commission research and, and speaking, uh, then, then that, you know, makes a, a virtuous business cycle. Mm. And, and Mark, did you get involved with business coaches or mentors in your early days? Yeah, I did. And uh, for me, it was about those that were on the tools and that I looked up to as a young social researcher and uh, sociologist that, that, that 
were masters of the craft. And I mentioned Hugh McKay as, as one of those social commentators that's, that's held in, in such regard. And, and there are a few others as well that, that I learned from, a few in the academic space, um, a few in the, the broader public commentary space. But, uh, but yeah, learning from them was great. And, and, and for me, you know, that's how, how I built things, I guess, by being good at the craft and getting others in who are good at the craft. Now, then you've got to back end onto that, uh, the business knowledge and, and making the business work. We all know, you know, great people that are excellent at their, on the tools, mm. but they, they can't run the business. So that's been the journey for us to make sure that we can have the, the business that supports, you know, the passion for what we do as, as social researchers, but uh, but yeah, I had mentors across uh, both of those mm. key areas. Tell us about your new book. It's called Work Wellbeing, Leading Thriving Teams in Rapidly Changing Times. What's someone going to get when they read this? Well, we've got a, a passion for work and for good work done well. And, you know, we know from our research that people spend more than a third of their waking hours at work. In fact, for many Australians, once you include the commute time, we're actually around half of our waking hours. Uh, for many, it's more than half. So if we're not flourishing at work, if we're not growing through our work, we're going to have a problem in our life. And it's our view that well-being or flourishing or thriving uh, has to uh, include the workplace, the work team, our leadership, uh, uh, knowing that work is the key place where we utilize our skills for most people, where they have social interaction and where they can make a contribution. And so that's really what it's about, how we can find work, grow our work, and be those sorts of leaders that can create flourishing workplaces and, and work opportunities uh, for their teams. Have you incorporated the fact that workplaces are set to change a, a bit because of the coronavirus? Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the key drivers as we were moving into this stage. And that's why you know, that subtitle is Leading Thriving Teams in Rapidly Changing Times. And uh, you know, we've got to, as leaders now, manage the dispersed workplace, not the gathered one. We've got to, I think, double down on our culture, on our development, on our connection, on the, the social um, engagement of our teams because we can't rely on it happening ad hoc as we connect in a workplace itself. And so, so that was a key part of it as well. And also, you know, this recognition, and we've all seen it, that, that mental health and stress and loneliness indeed and isolation are growing maladies in our society and employers. And we found this in the research. The majority of, of employees say that it's employers that have to take the responsibility for the well-being of their team uh, from a working perspective. Mate, uh, I know you've made the observation that a lot of people are sort of looking for a slower pace of life and um, mm. I, I guess they think they can achieve that by you know, working at least some time of their life at home. Have you thought about the productivity impacts of that? Yes, we did. We conducted a couple of studies during this COVID uh, situation for us, and and that's what was fascinating. You know, we we knew that that people would enjoy the work from home because of time saved and money saved from commute. Uh, we we knew that that they would appreciate you know the slower pace, just cutting out the commute, more time with family or or friends that that it provided. Uh, but what we were unsure about is the work life balance side of it because suddenly work is home and boundaries can blur. And we were happy in this national study of those who worked from home during COVID to find that uh, for two-thirds of them, they had better work-life balance 
during the, the work from home time. And more than half of work from home workers in this time found their productivity was greater at home than at work. Now, keep in mind, it's not as though the other half had, had it worse. Hardly anyone had it worse. Less than one in 10 uh, others said it was unchanged. And when we looked a bit deeper at those who did have a challenge around productivity and working from home, it was often because there was someone else working from home or the kids were learning from home during some of this, and that created a bit of chaos. Mm. But generally, productivity has gone up, not down, in a work-from-home environment. So what kind of person is going to benefit from picking up the book, actually reading it, and being affected by it? Well, firstly, those that maybe are thinking about their next direction. You know, we, as futurists and, and analysts in this space, we try to give a bit of a sketch as to, to where work is going. And, you know, the fact is that if someone has a, a stable job, but it's a toxic environment, if, if it's a place where they're not thriving, even though it's a tough working or, or employment uh, environment at the moment, you know, they, they really ought not settle and ought to, ought to look at the direction. We give a few instructions about where work is going and, and the importance of it uh, because of how much time it takes in our life and, and, and that it is such a key platform uh, in our life, a place of meaning and purpose and connection and identity and all of that. Uh, but for employers, for leaders, you know, that's a key audience as well. And, and, and they are the key enablers of well-being among staff, the key ones who can create growth and development and engagement of the next generations, and also we found other key blockers to effective flourishing or, or well-being in our workplaces. So we've given lots of instructions and guidance and research-based insights in the book about how to, how to be those well-being leaders, those level five leaders, if you like, who can create growth and benefit. And we found that employers, and we've got empirical data in the book through our studies to show it, employers who create an engaged team, they have better workplace culture, so that means staff are more likely to recommend them. They've got better tenure of staff, so less turnover costs, and they've also got greater productivity or engagement with their staff as well. So it brings not only a better workplace and enhances people, uh, but it certainly brings about the, the ROI on that as well. Great stuff. Mark McCrindle, the book is called Work Wellbeing, Leading Thriving Teams in Rapidly Changing Times. Mark, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. You're welcome, Peter. Thanks so much. Well, it's that time of the show when we do an ad, and we always do ads for our products. So theswitzerreport.com.au. This is where we've assembled some of the smartest tipsters when it comes to stocks. They've been doing fantastically well of late. We've been actually doing fantastically well for the last five or six years that the report's been going. If you want to give it a, a whirl, there's a 21-free-day trial. You can check it out, see if it's any good. I tell you what, you will find out it's good. It then would cost you $397 a year. And for many people, particularly if it's in a self-managed super fund, it would be tax deductible. Have a look at switzerreport.com.au. Well, I have to let you all know there's a new money site out there. It's been designed specifically to help women, but I think down the track, you know, after women get all helped, a lot of blokes will probably end up getting help as well. Um, it's, um, I have to say, it's been designed by my wife and partner, Maureen Jordan, and it's called Tilly, and it's a part of the Switzer organisation. But I've got to say, I've had very little to do with it. Maureen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. Good to be talking to you at this kind of professional level. I mean, yeah. 
You know, we do talk constantly, Peter. You know, we're known to always be walking around the eastern suburbs. We walk around the Blue Mountains. You know, it's like, remember one time Mary, that woman who owns the dress shop, said to us, what do you two talk about all the time? Yeah, well, lots. And uh, we've got family and business. It's generally you chewing me out for all the things I do yeah, wrong well, on the Yeah, well, you know, improving you, Peter, improving yeah, right. you. But, um, but just to be precise, because mm. I know you like to be a man of precision, is yeah. it's not called Tilly. It's called Tilly Money. Ah. Okay. So it's all about... Well, I've heard you talk about Tilly all the time. You don't give the official title. So Tilly's like the, the nickname, but is t- what's the website? That's a, we should okay, know. well, that's www.tillymoney.com.au. Mm. Why Tilly? Why Tilly? Well, you know, you know how patriotic Australians and Matilda, mm. you know, the old um, in the... Walsing Matilda. Matilda. You know, it was the backpack that was slung, slung over to hold people's belongings and... We thought that really good Aussie name, but then to make it a little bit more casual, it was Tilly. And then the old way, old thing of where you store your money if you run a business was in the till. Mm. And uh, it's kind of old-fashioned, very Australian. And the whole team, um, there's a mixture of age groups, said, yeah, Tilly money, we love it. And right. uh, we did our research, um, we did surveys, and that came up as the name that people liked. What do you want this website to do? Everything. Mm. Gee, that's a that's an all embracing answer. It is, but you well, know, wash me. my car. You know me. No, <laughs> I probably won't. But yeah. um, but you do do that yourself. But um, look, the website um, is part of it. Um, behind that is a machine learning program too. That when we get into that stage of development, where people can do courses, you know, that we'll run um, that skill them into more complicated areas of money. Um, but there'll also be events now. Obviously. They're on hold and we'll do a couple of virtual events as the year unfolds. But um, it's it's not just the website. It's a whole learning strategy. And so it's a community it's around a building a community, money education. Building a community. Yeah. And more important, it's building um, what I like to call a skyscraper, skyscraper of role models. Um, and, you know, when you and I have our countless talks, Sometimes it's hard when you're a male and I know how broad-minded you are and how incredibly supportive you are of women um, in our combined lives. And, you know, I know this one woman accuses you of, you know, being sexist. Well, what a joke. You know, I know you better than anybody and you're far from that. But there's kind of like an unconscious thing that I don't think men realise is that You've always had role models, mm. you know. I mean, the initial role models are our parents and you had certainly had good parents, but but you've always had role models that you probably weren't even aware of and that they were people in sport, you know, people in activities that you engaged in. Yeah. You know, when you went to the doctor, it was probably a man, the dentist probably yeah. a man. Yeah. My dad's accountant was a man, was a man yeah. in those days. It's yeah. changed, of course, now, but and also... Um, lawyers were often a man. Yeah. yeah, that's changing nowadays. Yeah. And the, I guess that's the the significance of Tilly that as all these professional white collar um, positions are becoming increasingly occupied by women, there's a greater, greater desire for women to learn about money. Totally, totally. And these what we're trying to build is this, as I said, skyscraper role models. Because I remember Pete one time when you know we own Rush magazine, and Rush will be. Um, you know, exposed to this learning platform mm. as well. You know, and Rush is like, like a, a a woman's magazine, under 40. A fashion magazine. Yeah, under yeah. forty. You know, yeah. it's it's um it's one of those love brands. You know, those people who it's an Australian um, originated magazine that we bought about twelve years ago, but uh, now it's got other partners in it. But um, 
they've always been um, role models, as I said, for men. But I remember going to the girls one day um, at Rush and I said, hey, girls, I said, one day, would you be interested in me talking to you about money, you know, so you can buy all these fabulous things that you see in the magazine, but you don't have to buy them on a credit card. And they all put their hands up and said, yeah, yeah, teachers, Maureen, teachers. And and then someone said to me, Maureen, who do we, you know, it's great that you said that because who are our role models, you know, and they said, they named a couple and I'm not going to say them, you know, but they're the typical, you know, Oh, God, I'm pausing with names. But the typical thing that if our daughter or grandchildren, you wouldn't want that to be a role model mm. and for them. And they You're said, You're not we thinking have, Kim Kardashian, are you? Well, you know, the, she's a good a businesswoman. Yeah, a really good businesswoman. Yeah, she probably so, would be a good money. Yeah, uh, yeah, teacher. in that respect, she yeah, would be. But yeah. this was, this was, these were naming people that were just on the front of those magazines, not like Rush, but they were the magazines like New Idea, No Idea, you know, mm. lost 20 kilo, gained 20 kilo. You know, it's all this rubbish stuff, you know, divorced, divorced, divorced. And they said, We don't want these people as our role models. And that, planted a seed in my head to think, well, where are the role models? Mm. And, okay, and they are there. Them. There are they plenty are there. successful women. They are there. Yeah. You so know. we see it in small business all the time, which become big businesses. Uh, Maureen, um, how do you how do you imagine you're going to grab the attention of women? And, and before I, I ask that question, and you're talking about role models, a, a lot of uh, girls did grow up in families where the mum did actually control the finances. Mm. That you know, often the the dad did the work, and maybe the dad wasn't good at managing money. Mums have managed the money, but out there in the public world, women haven't been identified no. as strongly as, as being good money managers. No, that's right. You know, my household, mum yeah. definitely did that, and mum, you know, had a background in business as well. But um, how do we how do we translate that? I think a lot of times women do manage the household. Oh. Um, you know, they pay the bills, they go for the cheapest thing. But learning about money and investing, and certainly there'll be elements of managing money, mag- managing the domestic purse strings. You know, going for bargains, doing budgets, yeah. GSTing your life to steal one of your phrases. Mm. You know, yeah. when get you put, savings. When you hit- 10% on your spending that can be used for saving and investing. Totally, totally. But what will eventually, while well, we'll hit the, those kind of things, and I know that the women that I talk to, the young women, they are interested in that kind of thing. But ours is more moving to that stage where investing becomes a thing. Investing in your first home, buying an investment property, looking at the share market, and then all the complications as you get into more sophisticated things about understanding what a managed fund is. You know, even going beyond that, to well, what are derivatives? What are options? Mm. You know, going right through, you know, bonds and and whatever, and you know, sensible investing strategies. And if you look at the world of money and finance, it's pretty blokey. Mm. And well, go- I will also say a lot of people learned at the coalface, mm-hmm. and in those days, the coalface of stockbrokers That's were right. invariably men. That's right. And so, you know, you get some exceptions like Julia Lee and that sort of stuff, but there aren't many g- women in the stockbroking fraternity mm. either. Yeah, and it, and it has a language all of its own. Yeah. And so some people, it's like the law, it's like medicine in some ways. It's got a language all its own and that what we're, that's what we're trying to do is break down those language barriers too. So someone, you know, could think, oh, I'm dumb, I don't understand money. No, that's not it at all. Mm. You know, we're both taught at schools and universities in our past lives mm. and we know that you can teach a receptive mind almost anything. Yeah. Mm. So is the clue then 
that you're going to take the kind of information that everybody, whether it be man or woman, should know about um, accumulating money and then investing it wisely, but also present it in a really entertaining yeah. way so people remain engaged because that's a problem mm. with a lot of information. It's out there, but and a lot of people boring. are so busy mm. they can't deal with boring money stuff. Mm. But money shouldn't be boring because it really has exciting outcomes, doesn't it? Well, Peter, it? you've taught. You know, you used to teach economics and talk about Suzanne economics and mm. there were people who all of a sudden you were opening up their minds to economics by finding lingo that they understood. Yeah. And I know that ex-students, say, from Sydney Grammar, um, even at the University of New South Wales, I remember you, you know, saying about Suzanne economics, you know, mm. to understand understand the economy you've got to look at this goes with this goes with this you know, and young and I haven't got a good voice but young people have people have come up in the street students that you taught 25 years ago and said oh Mr Switzer Mr Switzer no. call me Peter but I'll never forget when you used to do Suzanne economics yeah. you know you can teach people as long yeah. as you find the ways to open up their mind to receptivity, yeah. as I said. I also taught them about the law of diminishing marginal utility using Coca-Cola and beer. Mm. Um, but that's a story for another day. Another day, yeah. Uh, so, Maureen, um, so the site is now live. The site is live. We did a soft launch mm. uh, last Friday. Obviously, we want to do a real live event, but mm. that's just on hold for the moment. Yeah. But we got a wonderful write-up um, just today, actually, um, in the Australian um, by Jonathan Chancellor, mm. and you know, said you know that's um, a great idea and great cartoon, saying, "Oh, this is this is great." You know, talk, teaching women about money. When are we going to have one a site that teaches men? Mm. <laughs> so yeah. we expect men to come to the site. I welcome them, mm. but this is going to be predominantly aimed. One of our aims, the main aim, being to close the gender wealth gap, Peter, mm. because they're. There is, there is a gap. There's a gender pay gap. There's problems with superannuation and, you know, women taking time off or not understanding super properly and therefore not having enough in retirement. And there's definitely a gender wealth gap. So they're parts of our mission is to contribute to closing those areas. I know when I'm trying to get, say, young men interested in money, I, I do use the things that they might care about, you know, um, Sport. Footy. Yeah, hmm. yeah. well, hmm. you know, the, the stars that earn lots yeah. of money, what do they do with their yeah. money and that sort of stuff? So you, you get the hook. Hmm. What kind of hooks do you think you'll use? Because let's face it, um, you know, and I've taught lots of women in my life, University of New South Wales, I'll point 50% uh, uh, young women. Um, and young women often get um, distracted by other things, just like men get distracted by other things. How are you going to stop them from being distracted by some of the magazines you were talking about earlier and, and get them interested in dedicating some of their time to reading about money because that's all they have to do. The more time they dedicate, the more they'll learn and the more they'll change. Well, there's a couple of things. One, I've got behind me a great team of young women yep. and so they know how to communicate with each other. So apart from the website, obviously, there's a whole Facebook and social media strategy um, that'll um, accelerate engagement. But you know what, Pete? Money itself has a certain kind of, you know, it's different to economics, you know, like talking to someone about diminishing marginal returns. And I know you did that really brilliantly. well. Brilliantly. But, and I don't compliment you, you know, easily or often. But, Hardly. But I know you're a good teacher. But I actually think that money itself, you know, people become intrigued by it. Now, the best example I can give you, and you know, you've seen what's happened here at Switzer, is that 
I am so proud that we've been able to contribute to the financial independence and we've got a number of people who work here and they're young and when they came, a lot of them didn't have great credentials but they were skilled Money in doing... Yeah, money credentials, you know, but we said, no, it's attitude. We can teach you that kind of thing. Now, I've seen three people, two, one guy, two, two girls that I know of, young, and they now own a property. Mm. And they've said that what they've learned by being exposed to the information, and at Switzer we like to teach things in an entertaining, mm. you know, way with great videos and, you know, we'll use, you know, any kind of movie title or song title we can to, you know, turn heads and good photography. Now, three people, you know, within 12 months have made that step towards financial independence by buying a property. Mm. And, and two of them also are in the share market. Mm. You know, I've seen a broader team play share market games, which is teaching them, you yep. know, and so they're not actually buying the shares, but they've got, um, you know, they've got a share market game going mm. with mm. each other. Now, it's osmosis. Mm. You know, the trouble a lot is that if you have spent your life busy at other things and not being exposed to something like money, you know, you just don't absorb it. But once it's anything, once you're exposed to something, Peter, once you become aware of it, mm. you know, then you really start loving it. And mm. I've got, as I said, we've got right here in this business people who are perfect examples of that. And that's going to be happen to Tilly too. Call me an economist, but what you're really talking about is a multiplier effect. Yeah. You know, you introduce something mm. like information, mm. people like it, they want more, and they're not just getting it from here, they're probably reading better newspapers, better websites. Totally. Yeah, and they get day by day smarter, money mm. smarter, and they potentially grow their wealth as a consequence mm. of it. Well, I've seen that with you. You know, years ago you weren't too bright. <laughs> yeah, tell me that. But look look I, at Peggy Kim Company with me. Mm. Look how smart and wealthy that's made you. Yeah, it's a good point. Now, mm. is there anything else you'd like to say about Tilly that people out there need to know? Oh, just repeating the um, the website, mm. um, tillymoney.com.au. Mm. You can subscribe. The content is free. There will be different stages that will be developed. Mm. Will there be paid content and being a member? Like co- money coaching member. stuff. Exactly, mm. exactly. But, um, but at this stage, particularly given COVID as well, mm. um, I would absolutely love it if you go and tell your audience constantly mm. about the benefits and how wonderful, what kind of self-esteem that you can have by being financially independent. Yeah, mm. and, I, and I think this is a message that is not just going directly to your market. This could be a message that could be picked up by mothers, fathers, grandparents who could say to their young daughters and their young sons, hey, this is a website out there designed to help you get richer as you get older. And that's, you know, as that Sophie Tucker line goes, mm. I've been rich, I've been poor, rich is better. Definitely. And it's not an age thing, Peter. You mm. know, that at any stage people can learn. And the excitement about life is it's so easy to learn now because you, you know, you've got, you know, website, you've got so much information out there and it's open to all ages. And, uh, because you've done this interview and I value it so much, I'll let you make me dinner tonight. Oh, that's very good of you. Mm. It is her birthday month. Oh, like, yes. Like what man in the world has a birthday month? Well, they didn't think of it. You know, they got their mind on other things. <laughs> okay, let's get rid of her now. That's Maureen Jordan. She's the founder of tillymoney.com.au. Thank you so much, Peter. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Go and check out tillymoney.com.au. It would really 
be good for me and my relationship with Maureen Jordan. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time!